Hello. How are you? I love your shit. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, how are you? Thank you so much for doing this, for agreeing to to this interview. No, thank you so much for, for having me and for, for reading the book. I'm really excited. Hello, everyone. My name is Andre Clark, and I'm representing Caribbean today. Um, today, we have Brienne, Brienne McIver. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, you are. Beautiful. We have Brienne McIver, who is an award-winning writer from Trinidad and Tobago. She holds degrees in English from the universities of Cambridge and Edinburgh and has a certificate in advanced professional makeup artistry. Her short story collection, Where There Are Monsters, was published in 2019. And today I have the extreme honor to talk with her about her debut novel, The God of Good Looks, which was released earlier this summer. I have the book here with this beautiful cover. Let me make sure everyone can see. Yes. And I know that you have, uh, in previous interviews, gone through great lengths to let everyone know that is not you on the cover. <laughs> One of those things that, like, when we were designing the cover, it did not occur to me. It didn't occur to anybody on any team that it could possibly be me. I don't think it looks that much like me. And then when the book came out, everyone was like, oh, is that you on the cover? And the first time I got the question, I was just like, no, of course not. And then after I got it a few times, I was like, do I not know what I look like? Is it, am I missing something? Um, it's it's a very like artsy cover as well with like, you know, flowers, like covering her mouth and on her face. So yeah, I was, that was one of the surprises of publication that, that I got asked so many times. <laughs> Is that you? For sure. And like, I don't know if I've ever seen an, an author that put themselves on the cover. That's a little, <laughs> yeah. that's a, that's a little, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think you would be that vain. Um, even though yeah that's more like you know like autobiography like your prince harry on the cover of spare not like right. um, where you're like no it's i just i want to put myself front and center in every possible way i know I, no. I hear you for sure so um first and foremost how are you uh with with the god of good looks only being out a few months and being so well received I'm sure everything has been like a whirlwind um, since the release. Yeah, it has been so surreal. I feel like for my whole life, I had this dream, like I want to be a writer. And it's one of those things you never know if it can come true, when it will come true. Even when you're writing, you never know if anybody will care about your book, your characters, and to have all of that happening now, um, yeah, it's it's just been a dream come true. Like, I wish I could go back in time, like, you know, when I was working on this book in like the wee hours of the morning because I had to balance my nine to five and just, you know, daily chores with writing. And it was like two o'clock and I knew I'd be like exhausted and work the next day. I wish I can just say to that girl, be like, listen, it's going to get better. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to work out very well. Um, so for our Caribbean Today viewers who may not be familiar with you, could you please um, give us a little short introduction and maybe some insight into your background and upbringing? 
Sure. So I am born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Um, growing up, I had a mother who read to me all the time and I always wanted to be a writer and I don't actually remember this but she tells me I couldn't even read and I would follow her around with books just reading to her in inverted commas and, and making up all of these stories um, and yeah my family like many Caribbean families is this just crazy mixed family with you know people who either came to the Caribbean or were brought to the Caribbean from all different parts of the world um I yeah lived in Trinidad my whole life up until um I went away to university um when I was 18 and that gave me a whole new perspective because I think you know when you live somewhere your whole life you take everything about that place for granted and it was only when I was living first in Cambridge and then in Edinburgh that I realized, hey, all of these things that are just so normal to me, some of them are completely different and abnormal. And um, yeah, I just had a wonderful time at university, came back to Trinidad when I was done, and I've been back home ever since. Oh, that's amazing. Was there like, uh, what was the cultural diffusion like in, in Cambridge and Edinburgh? Were, was there, did you encounter a lot of Caribbean people from different islands or... Did you kind of feel like, you know, the unicorn in the group? Very, very few. Um, it's really interesting, actually, because when I was at Cambridge and my college, Gruton, I was something called the ethnic minorities rep. And mm -hmm. there was this belief in England, in the in the UK, that like students of color were not applying to Cambridge because they didn't think that they could fit in. And so part of my job was to you know, interact with students who had great grades and who could get it and to help them to see that, you know, this is a great place. And so I remember inviting some of the students up and they came over and they spent time with me, with other students. And one of them said, wow, everybody's so nice to you. Like, you know, so many people. And it was so funny because that student, she had been told by her teachers that although she had the grades to go to Cambridge, she would not fit in there and she was discouraged from applying and that was a huge culture shock to me because I think growing up in Trinidad where the vast majority of the country is people of color I had never thought oh I'm not gonna apply to Cambridge because I'm a woman of color now I had thought I mightn't get in because it's competitive but I think that that was a huge sort of cultural realization for me and I ended up talking to a lot of my friends um, from Trinidad who went away and they encountered something very similar and, and we talked about you know there's a sense that we actually are kind of fortunate that we never had to go through this whole oh I wouldn't be allowed in this space because of my race that that a lot of people like in in the UK and some of my friends in the US you know some of those experiences that they had um and so I guess that was the positive. I think mm -hmm. one of the things I realized was negative was just how used um, I was to crime. I sort of grew up in a country where the crime rate was getting worse and worse. I think mm -hmm. now Trinidad has the sixth highest crime rate per capita in the world. Wow. And I remember the first time I stayed with a friend 
um being in her house and I was just like aren't you aren't you gonna put the alarm on um like (laughs) where's the burglar proof you know and then she's like what is what is wrong with you like we don't need that I just it boggled my mind like it literally took me a while to be okay with windows without all of those bars going across because I was just like what if someone comes in and everyone's like what no one's gonna come in so it was a huge I think culture shock in good and bad ways but no I did not encounter a lot of Caribbean people I think when I did though there was always this this immediate connection like because they would hear the accent and they would they would place it right away I would place their accent um and yeah it was I think it it also helped me to think of myself more as a Caribbean person and less of a Trinidadian because mm-hmm. when you're in the Caribbean you're Trinidadian and then somebody else is you know Jamaican Grenadian but like in, in sort of like the vastness of another country, anybody from the Caribbean, you're just like, hey, nice to see you. Right. That makes total sense, you know, and I think that's an amazing program um, that they had at Cambridge and representation really matters, you know, like seeing all you need is to see one person in that position and it totally changes how you feel about your opportunities and the things that you can accomplish in those spaces. So I, I think that's really great. So just to get into a a little bit about the plot, um, we meet Bianca Bridge, a 24-year-old aspiring novelist um, who wants to write a novel based on her mother's life. And um, she she goes away to university in the UK, comes back, um, meets a lovely man at a, at a, a cafe who also likes to read like her. And she ends up having an affair with a government official, a married government official. Um, they get caught. And he gets to resume his career. And she's basically a pariah in Trinidad. And she models um, and writes, but she gets fired from her writing job. So she models to make ends meet. And eventually she meets the god of good looks, Obadiah, a a makeup guru in Trinidad. And he gives her a job um, to work on, to be her, his assistant, and also work on his, uh, would you say like, it's a literary magazine or a- Fashion magazine. Fashion magazine uh, uh, that that is a part of his brand. Um, So we know that Bianca is- not an autobiographical character that's she's not you but you have you know as you've explained previously she is like a lot of her life is inspired by your own real life experiences and you just detailed a a a great example um regarding makeup but can you speak more to the modeling aspect um working for mass camps modeling for mass camps um because the book went into such great detail about photography uh, about the modeling about the different characters that you meet in that world how seedy it can get um and it feels like I I know you've probably done a ton of research but it also feels very natural and very real like someone who's really been in that in that experience kind of explaining you know, what happens? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, that was a brilliant summary. Like there are times when people ask me to summarize the book and after all this time, I take a moment and I go, where should I start? That was amazing. Oh, appreciate it. I, I could just take out all the 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 ahs and the ums, <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate it. Um, and yeah, so I think both Bianca and Obadiah were inspired by aspects of my life, but I never write a character wholesale into a book based on either myself or someone I know well. So it's not that I can ever point a character and say, oh, she's me, or this is my father, or anything like that. But there have been experiences in my life that just naturally have fed into Bianca's experiences. So I have had like experience modeling, not anything like Bianca's experience modeling. Um, but I have sometimes been in those situations where you're doing an ad around carnival time as well in Trinidad. That is the time when people are looking for models because mm -hmm. like carnival season, the buildup, you know, when the different mass camps release their costumes, like they're people who, you know, they're looking to see which band are they going to play with? Like which costume is the best? You know, their certain sections are going to sell out really quickly. You have to, you know, get in there, get your costume. It's, it's, it's a huge season. And that, if you are modeling, like that's the time when you would have a lot of work. And it's so fascinating because the origin of carnival in Trinidad, carnival came from, um, the plantations and from slaves resistance to sort of their personhood being taken away and it was always about this sort of like riot and rebellion and, and personhood and that element still exists but it's now also become just about beauty and you know do you have the hot body and mm -hmm. you, you know, yeah I mean, I'm on the mailing list for my dermatologist and around carnival time, the, the things you get about, you know, the full body wax, the cellulite removal, it's it's something that you hear from all sides if you are even just a regular person who's thinking of playing mass. And sometimes, you know, you will get comments, like you'll hear people say very casually, you know, oh, I need to get my body in, in the right condition to play mass. This idea that, you know, you can't, you can't just go on the road as you are. You need to, you know, there's this belief that you need to work for it. And I think that even, it's even worse in the modeling world because when you're modeling, you are supposed to be selling this costume. Every band is competing against all others. And I just think that naturally in that space, there's going to be so much body negativity. There's going to be so much judgment. And there are spaces for, for people who have, like, like in many industries, people who have not even a lot of power, but more power than the models to, to push against boundaries of what would normally be acceptable. Because there's this thing we do where you see a woman in a carnival costume, a modern carnival costume might be like, you know, a bikini with beads, sometimes a thong bottom. And you just think, mm you know, gosh, you know, she's not somebody deserving of respect. Look at how she's dressed. Look at how she behaves. You know, you sometimes you're treated so differently when you're dressed like that in a modeling context versus if you had been encountered maybe that same person in a suit. And so I think that my limited experiences had me thinking a lot about respectability politics. And then my friends' experiences 
and my own had me thinking so much about body image and the way that, you know, we have just sort of imbibed this belief that you need to look a certain way to play mass. Um, a friend of mine, she actually had an experience where she wanted to play mass in a particular section, not model. She wanted to pay money for the costume. And they asked her to send her a picture of them, both her face and her body, because they wanted to maintain a certain image in that section. And I'm like, wait, that is out of control. Um, and I know that like, while the carnival experience might be specific to countries that have this big buildup to carnival, um, the experience of feeling so judged in your own body and feeling so uncomfortable with your own body that's something that so many people go through from all cultures so I I did bring some of my own experience and I think it just combined with the knowledge of, of, of what so many people especially so many women go through the, the sense of you know you're never good enough you need to to work on this laundry list of things to be considered attractive um and I I think that you know Bianca she she struggles a lot with that over the course of the book um you know what should her relationship be with her own body with makeup with the clothes she wears and, and it's difficult it's difficult to answer it's not it's not a book that I think answers those questions you're not gonna end saying oh I figured it out but um I think that even her struggles you know hopefully <laughs> raise important questions hopefully yeah no it, it definitely does and I think um the fact that it's told from her perspective as someone who gets the attention that so many other women kind of uh ascribe to and to hear her her thoughts about you know, having to maintain this body, having to maintain this image, dealing with these men who who expect these things is really refreshing and I think really effective in um, showing that even the beautiful women, even the ones that have that stereotypical beauty struggle, <laughs> you know, and don't always want to be that person, but realizes that they have to be in order to kind of, you know, survive in that world so i i think it definitely accomplished what it needed to for sure thank you um and yeah i think sort of along those lines i also wanted to discuss the extent to which people who might not fall into the category of, of, of stereotypical beauty so there's a character might be a spoiler so i won't say who but there's a character who appears to fall into that category but a lot of it is illusion and and the pressure that those of us feel to ascribe to this very narrow often very eurocentric idea of beauty and when we don't meet it you know that sometimes there's this use of makeup as like a mask uh, you know and and the sense of the, the you know what it is to be beautiful in the conventional traditional sense is so narrow and yet people might be aware of that they might be aware of how messed up it is but they might still have this sense of yeah but I, I still want to, to look that way you know for sure um so I want to so I'm personally I'm a MFA student um in my first semester so I wanted to slip a craft question in there for you yeah. um if you don't mind uh 
So one of my favorite authors, Claire Keegan, she said in an interview that as a writer, she's always looking for a character that's genuinely ailing or finding it difficult to cope, someone who's out in the deep water. Is that similar to your philosophy when, you, when you're trying to develop your characters, or at least for this book? Because it feels like a lot of the people that we meet in The God of Good Looks, especially Bianca and Obadiah, they feel like they're they're out there in the deep water as they you know, navigate their life and try to figure out what success looks like for them. So, well, first of all, good luck in your MFA. I'm sure that is both exciting and crazy challenging. Very. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. And yes, yeah, so I once um, attended a, a writing workshop with Marlon James. He was in Trinidad. It was just after he won the Booker Prize. Um, and of course, like this thing was oversubscribed. So we're all there, you know, um, and he gave me a piece of advice that's actually really similar to what Claire Keegan said. He said, don't be afraid to give your characters nothing. Mm. He said, you know, sometimes as authors, we want to coddle our characters. We want to say, okay, you know, like, let me take care of you almost. Um, but don't be afraid to push past that and to say, okay, what if, you know, they, there was nothing going for them? What, how can they respond? And what would that tell us about their personalities? And I really took that to heart. I think at the beginning, you know, Bianca, part of what this book does is Bianca has this affair with Eric. And she is somebody who is often the object of scorn. Like in Trinidad, we would say, you know, the outside woman or the corner woman. Um, and this is often the figure who is the villain. This is, you know, this is the woman who is on the outside, but, but it's told from her perspective. And I had to say, okay, why would she want to be with Eric? What is it that she gets from Eric? And in order for her, I felt to really seriously want to be with him so badly and for him to give her so much she couldn't have a lot in her life she couldn't have you know a wonderful supportive family and a great friend group and you know because then the appeal of Eric would not have been the same and Eric had this sort of opportunism for vulnerability where he realized how vulnerable she was and he was able to exploit that so right. I think that for Bianca, I knew, okay, she can't have a lot in her life. And that also, to me, raised really interesting questions about, okay, well, how will she respond to this as well? You know, how will she respond to really the only good thing since she came back to Trinidad in her mind was Eric, and now he's not there. How will she respond to being the object of scorn, not having a job, not having a good relationship with her father, sort of clinging to modeling as her only form of income, despite the fact that that career is so fraught with issues. And so I wanted her to be in that situation. And then Obadiah, he, again, is somebody who, he has his business, but then the rest of his life is a complete shambles. Um, mm -hmm. And I think... 
but the story I wanted to write was both of them helping and saving each other. I definitely didn't want it to be a story of Obadiah saving Bianca, you know, um, but at the same time, he does give her so much and he gives her a new lens to interpret different things. So I, I do think that that is great advice, um, both the sort of Claire Keegan, Marlon James, both in terms of you learning more about your characters because sometimes the characters surprise you. you you think you know and you're writing and then you read it over and you're like huh you know um but also I think that sometimes as an author you're going to have to be ruthless in certain situations you can't always think of your characters like your friends where you want everything always to work out and if you can embrace that mindset of, of even if you know that you're planning a happy ending, but the characters have this dark night of the soul somewhere in there. I do think that, that that's, a, that's a good mindset to have. Amazing. So I know we only have a few more minutes. Um, so I will ask maybe like two more questions. Um, one of the, the parts of the book that I really enjoyed was the depictions of Trinidad, both the good and the bad. So uh, the God of Good Looks spans the history, culture, and current societal ills of Trinidad and Tobago through the use of beauty and literary industries, um, especially those newspapers. Every time there was a newspaper, I said, oh, man, what, what, <laughs> what these people did now? Um so how how important was it to you to depict the beautiful parts of Trinidad and the not so beautiful parts like the gender inequality, sexism, poverty and rampant crime, which is also something that I think you you masterfully did in um, in where there are monsters. Um, which was kind of like the the main part of where there are monsters, but, you know, you weaved it in very very beautifully into this book so like how how can you speak more to like how important it was to really show uh, a complete image of Trinidad and not just you know the destination vacation and the the beach and the sand and the sun and the carnival um what yeah can you speak more to that that's a great question um and thank you so much so no I think that actually I'll, I'll start um, touching on something we talked about earlier, which is um, when I started living abroad, um, I think that that was the first time that I really encountered the Caribbean stereotypes in a in a much more real way. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, like if there's a movie and it's set in the Caribbean, there's instantly going to be a steel pan playing, a beach, a palm tree, rum, you know, you know what it is. But I think that I just figured, yeah, okay, well, that's just, you know, a movie setting the scene. They have those stereotypes for everywhere. But I would, you know, meet and talk to people and they would have all of these assumptions about the Caribbean. And I think that like any place, you know, stereotypes, there is an element of truth, but it's not the whole story. But I think that when you compare the Caribbean to other more well-known countries, so you think of a country like the U.S., whether you've been to America or not, you have a working knowledge of the US. I know what it means if you're from the North or the South. I know like East Coast, West Coast. I have an idea of those things. Whereas, you know, the Caribbean in general, Trinidad, it's just the sort of very vague kind of like beach rum. 
Um, and I wanted to show the different sides of it because I feel it's not something that I read about a lot. And I feel like growing up in the modern Caribbean, you know, I remember one time um, I was in the US on, on some sort of book event and I was telling somebody a story about the first time I got recognized as an author. And I said, yeah, you know, somebody came up to me in Starbucks. And the the the, the point of the story was that this person comes up to me in Starbucks and she's like, hey, are you Brianne McIver? And I was just like, where do I know you from? Hmm. And then she's like, I love your book. I was so excited. And she's like, but also like you look so much better in person than your author photo. Your author photo is terrible. And I went just like from up to down. I was like, what? And I always tell that story. It gets a kind of grown laugh. And I'm telling it in the US. And when I get to the end, somebody's like, hang on, you have a Starbucks in Trinidad? And I remember just being like, I mean, that's not, that's not the point. Yeah, sure, we do. <laughs> um, we have many and many other coffee shops. And so I think that part of what I hope is that this book can be a small part of showing, you know, what the modern Caribbean is. And I think to me that is the good and the bad like I I personally know what it's like to live in a country you know like when you talk about those newspaper headlines like there are times where I will unfollow the news on social media because I'm like I can't with the constant you know like murders rape like just just um today before I came on I checked x twitter and um there was just like yeah 600 and something murders for the year 16 percent detection rate you know and I, I so i i did want to show the negative side of it too i wanted to just show a complete picture of trinidad um and it it, it was really important to me because one thing that happened when i was looking for an agent um is that there was one agent who actually felt that like look what we need to do in this book is we need to lean into the um the the sun sea and sand version of the caribbean because that's going to be the most recognizable version of the caribbean um and you know this crime stuff that has to go that you know like you're you're writing for an international audience i mean and and, and in the end we ended up not working together and i i do think that an agent's job is to sell a book and that was their you know vision of 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 how this book would sell um but i think that you know experiences like that in the end made me want to 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 do it more because i i want to be like no like we just like everybody deserves like this sort of nuanced portrayal of of, of where we live and and who we are and i think that um the fact that I still live in Trinidad now that I was writing this book and some of, you know, sometimes things would happen like in the news and I'd be like, okay, the, the tiny ray of sunlight to this terrible newspaper headline is I'm going to fictionalize it and put it in the book. Um, it, it was, it was really important to me to portray it. And I think that I had once gone to a book club and somebody in that book club said to me that she had never read a book. She was a Trinidadian. She had never read a book about who, um, experience in, in Trinidad who lived experience until she read something that I wrote and that's something that I just carry with me always as like one of the best pieces of feedback for, for somebody to feel that way beautiful and, and I can imagine because you know as much as being an author is a occupation and you want to be successful and make money you 
I don't think writers write just to make money. Like, it's not like, hey, I know how I'm going to be rich. Let me write a book. You know, you 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 want to touch people. You want to to really kind of have an exchange of energy with the readers and and impart something on them. So I'm sure that that feedback was like was everything for you. Um, so all right, I do have one more question. Um, do you have any upcoming projects that you can give us a little hint about, or you know, another novel, anything else coming up oh. that we can look out for? I am working on what I hope will be my next novel. I will say that for me, my first draft is always like a disaster zone. I think that, that that's one of the things that I had to accept about my process. You know, there's some people who they turn out a really good first draft. I think I read somewhere that Arthur Miller wrote Death of a Salesman in like three weeks or six weeks. And I was like, is this man, what? That's not me. And so like part of what I have to accept about my process is that my final draft may look very different from the first draft. So I almost like I'm not 100% sure, but I am working on what I hope will be another novel. Um, and I I have just accepted the the tragicness of like, I read parts over and I'll just be like, that can't stay in as it is. I'll just highlight it all in yellow and <laughs> I'll just move on. And I'll know like I'm coming back to this. Um, but yeah, <laughs> hopefully another one coming. Amazing. So we'll be on the lookout for that. Right now, got a good looks in hardcover. Where can people purchase purchase the book at the moment? Hopefully, anywhere books are sold. Um, it's on like Kindle, on Audible, Amazon. I have to make a plug for if you have a favorite indie bookstore. Um, so yeah. Yes, support support indie bookstores first before you go to Barnes and Noble. Look for that indie bookstore. Um, thank you so much for you know taking the time to talk with with me about your career, about your work, about upcoming work. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. And, you know, representing Caribbean today, we really do wish you continued commercial success and can't wait to see what you release next. Thank you so much. I had so much fun talking to you. You're a great interviewer. <laughs> <laughs>